You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc. I'm here with Christian Medzbier, who is a professor at the New School in New York, also the author of a couple of books, actually very extensive writing in a variety of publications and channels. But you have two books. One is called A Moment of Clarity. And then more recently, this book, Sensemaking, The Power of the Humanities in the Age of Algorithm. Welcome, Christian. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Well, I think that when we read this book, Sensemaking, it's kind of a critique both of the subject and the methods that most people employ, both in academia and in business, to understand the world. And in terms of the, the content, I think you argue that people focus too much on what we might call kind of the thin data and ignore the, the thick data. And I think that's kind of borrowed from Clifford Geertz's right, uh, thick description, right? And then, and then also... In terms of the methods, you argue that people are, they're emphasizing too much the analytical and ignoring the insights that can come from what some people might call the intuitive or, you know, the abductive, to use Charles Peirce's word. Is that a correct description? Are those inseparable? I mean, is it necessarily the case that those who use the the methods of analytics are necessarily going to be concerned with the kind of shallow data or are, are these kind of separate problems? I think practically they're often connected, but of course, I mean, I suppose intellectually you can definitely separate them. I've spent 20 years dealing with very large companies. So I'm sort of been marinating in uh, a kind of thinking that's maybe not always that's often fast, let's call it that, and, and maybe not always totally thorough. So my sort of 20 years experience of seeing it happen could be said that makes my analysis too unfair intellectually. But having seen how big deal decisions are made based on one narrow set of data, and analytical capacity, sort of write the book and seeing it get a little worse and getting more arrogant in a way was sort of the original reason for the last book and many ways my interests. And you're right, I mean, thick data or thick description is directly lifted out of Clifford Geertz and is inspired by that tradition in many ways, but is applicable now to the treatment of statistical data sets, let's say big data sets, and sort of the hype around it. And particularly the hype that was there five, six, seven years ago when I originally wrote the book where it was, it was very fashionable. It turned out to be less fashionable now, but at that point in time, it was very fashionable. Well, you talk about pendulum swings and, you know, I, I certainly have been participating in this kind of pendulum swing. I mean, I studied humanities and social sciences and, and a bit of the natural sciences. And I remember it was, I think it was right 2010 when we at the business school completely revamped our kind of statistics core and kind of made it more central and started launching classes in, in data science and, and so forth. And, you know, I, I like to argue that really this was motivated by kind of an underlying shift in the comparative advantage, right? So the cost of certain types of data acquisition dramatically declined. And so it kind of opened up, right? Kind of really big benefits 
that could be achieved from digging deeper into this. And so, so of course it was wrapped in all sorts of rhetoric, you know, the money ball rhetoric that you have all these old idiotic people who are making intuitive decisions based on their experience. And we're just going to kind of sweep them aside and replace them with, you know, this new way of doing things. And so it was a bit oversold, but you know, to what extent it is just to simply, you know, we have this technological shift, right? Where data sets are now available and computation is cheaper. So why wouldn't we want to just kind of shift more of the emphasis in that direction, at least until it runs out of steam and, you know, we've, we've used up all the uh, advantages and then all of a sudden now we can see that, all right, now that we've kind of used that up, we need to start thinking about, you know, where the benefits are on the other side. Is it more of a, or is there more of like an ideological or, you know, some kind of, kind of deeper problem than just simply, you know, let's just shift back and forth depending on where the insight can be achieved. Right. I mean, uh, there's certainly a level of hyperbole around computer science that can be intolerable sometimes. And I think over doesn't have an eye for some of the things about humans that are interesting and special and that there are tools to analyze and that I've seen be incredibly helpful, particularly when you're unsure about what on earth is going on and what is important to people. And particularly when you when your starting point is, let's call it fussy, and things have changed. So I just saw the arrogance and the pendulum swing being so out of control. It's since corrected, sort of, but it, it came from access to more data. It came from an ideology of quantitative analysis alone, full stop, rather than you could say other tool sets. And, and I saw it pervasive, like everywhere in the world, really. So, so it was sort of a reaction saying, I'm, I think there are other things, there are other ways of analyzing humans. And there's certainly things you're missing about us, about what's important to us, about how we find our way around the world that enormous data sets didn't solve in a way. And even when you get close to the people that are doing that are the best, let's say, at that kind of analysis, they agree. It was just more the generalized glaze of arrogance and misunderstanding that I try to correct. And then the other side of the question was, of course, that the humanities were bleeding and still are significantly. And I think that we lose a muscle and we lose a whole lot of analytical capacity in terms of what we make, how we make it, what's reasonable to make, what's important and helpful. If we haven't, if we've lost our historians and our philosophers and our sort of people that understand stories and literature and music and so on, and that that's too bad. And it's not just too bad for all of us, which it is, it's also bad for decision-making. So it was a mix of sort of seeing the hyperbole on one side and seeing the loss on the side of I call it human science because they're, they're parts of what's called the social sciences in America that, that I definitely want to include. Not all of it. There's parts of economics that's maybe not included, but there's certainly big parts of the social sciences that I think are also about humans. So anybody that's interested in humans and us and our societies and, and what's meaningful to us. So, so that was the original idea. It was an unease with the general state of affairs that have changed, but, but certainly was there at that point. And, and I think the response to that was 
good. And particularly in Asia, for some reason, Japan, South Korea, people were concerned with the same things. They just couldn't put their word, put words to it and they couldn't put their finger on precisely what it was that they also felt kind of an unease and a lack in their analysis. Well, I, I think you sometimes refer to this as kind of the, the Silicon Valley mindset, right? So, you know, there, there are people that all aspire to be like Silicon Valley and there's others that are, you know, recognizing some of the pathologies maybe of the, of the Silicon uh, Valley mindset. But, you know, in terms of the pushback, I mean, it seems like the, the pushback in part is coming from the, the realization that this uh, type of analytics is something that can be done best by computers themselves and that, you know, there's a comparative advantage for humans in terms of what humans are, are capable of understanding. And so, you know, we're essentially automating so much of what used to be done by folks like, like data scientists that this really leaves the humans to do the things that might involve empathy or and creativity or, you know, understanding humans, for instance, right, which the computers might have difficulty doing. But, you know, you emphasize that this Silicon Valley mindset is also flowing back into the educational system. And there seems to be this emphasis on STEM and educational resources are being plowed into STEM. We just here at Berkeley created this new data science school, which is costing us, you know, a couple hundred million dollars that we got donated to the school. But the, you know, the humanities are kind of withering on, on the vine and aren't getting these resources. And so you're teaching something called applied humanities. Is this, I'd love to know exactly what that is, but is, I mean, do the humanities have to justify themselves by demonstrating their usefulness to corporations, you know, when they're trying to sell merchandise? I mean, is, is that really what humanities have come down to, right? To, to show, hey, we too can help you make some money. We too can help you profit, right? You mentioned that, you know, maybe the path to CEO is paved with an English major and a history major and not a computer science major. Do, do we, is that what we have to do is we have to demonstrate that humanities can have this utility in the modern business? No. I mean, there are two, there's sort of several sides to that. Theoretically, no, right? Theoretically, history should be studied because we got to study history. Comparative literature should be studied because it's important and exciting and so on. But there's also a practical argument. And I think what I found was that when big decisions are made in large corporations about things that touch our lives, there is an empty seat. It's necessary to understand finance. It's necessary to understand the application of resources and doing that in an analytical way. It's necessary to understand technology, not just very advanced, but just the po what's possible, what can you make? But there's also a seat, I think, for people with a different sensitivity and a different kind of analytical, and I think it's analytical perspective. And that is the case in, you know, just a couple of examples, our new mobility systems. Like, how do we move around in the world? There was at the time a lot of, again, hyperbole from Silicon Valley that what is now three years ago, we would not drive our cars anymore. And we would have a million robo taxis in North America and nobody would own vehicles anymore. That was sort of the, that was the story. And I think even the people that are most advanced in that area and told it the loudest would agree that that didn't happen in 2018 and it's not happened yet. So 
there is this possibility of the humanities having influence uh, in something like our mobility systems or in our the way relationships between us are mediated. So social media being one. I think something like the way we find love and the way courtship works has changed significantly the last, what, five, ten years from when I grew up where it was complicated to now where it's probably complicated but mechanized in a different way. And, and I think love and courtship is, is a topic that we've been thinking about for a while and, you know, that includes Aristotle and Romeo and Juliet and, you know, the, the, there's a, thousands of years of, of thinking about what on earth that is. Uh, and, and I think there's a role for people from the humanities or from the human sciences to be part of that. Not alone, but with computer science and with finance and with other technology. So the way we move around in the world, the way we communicate and engage each other, the way love and courtship works are, seem to me to be topics where, where people from, let's say, a different, that come with a different epistemology, that come with a different approach to humans, it seems relevant. And I've seen very helpful. And I think left alone, technology and finance, which is the main drivers of most decisions in, not in politics anymore, but, but in the business world, say, left alone, sometimes mistakes are made and sometimes it's not inspired enough. So it's not just stopping things and, and sort of the discussion of ethics and what's wrong about Silicon Valley. It's also imagination and, and expanding the horizon of what's possible with technology. So that's what I mean by applied humanities. It's not in any way saying that humanity should be profit optimizing, mechanistic, utility focused. I'm just saying that it should play a role. And I, I, right now, nobody reads the papers that come out from most social I, I heard one day, day that the average anthropology paper is read by 0.8 people. That's not enough. It doesn't include the referees. Or, their, or the parents of the people writing them. And that's not enough. And I think the best students are that could be studying, say, history, are told either by their parents that have to pay or by their own risk-averse sort of nature. That's a hard bet to make because, you know, how do you make a living afterwards? So I, I think that the best students or the most, the people with the most heart in those topics are not doing it anymore. And that's too bad uh, for them because it would be interesting and exciting and important for them, but also for us in general, that we need the people that want it the most and that are most engaged in those topics to come to the universities and come to the education system with that enthusiasm and being able to release that enthusiasm on the world. So. So I think that's, that's my general opinion. By the way, I'm not against technology. I'm excited about it. I'm interested in it. I, I find it fascinating. And most of the things I'm doing right now is trying to figure out what is going on in the most advanced technological side of things from a philosophical perspective. But so I'm not against it at all. I just found at that point, there was such a dumb discussion about it and not if you went to the best conferences and the best places. But if you went to sort of half mediocre discussions about it, it was just, you know, it just gave me a headache. So it's this thing about finding it unfortunate that we don't 
use it enough. And by use, I mean use. I mean functionally using it and making decisions and coming up with ideas and so on. But also sort of a sadness about the deterioration of the field that, you know, if you think about it for two seconds, of course, it's important in any society that, that we study those things and have strong institutions of that study us and our worlds from something other than just a mechanistic kind of a perspective. I think you quote some politician or business person who said, you know, if you study English, you're going to work in Starbucks. I forget who that was. Notorious comment. But when you describe what you're doing with companies at Red Associates, when you help to understand the customer, right? You know, understand the, the habitus, right? Of the customer, maybe of the employee of the world in which this company is operating. Right. So it seems like the tools that you're using are ones that other, most people would describe as kind of social scientific tools to, to some degree, whether it's, you know, anthropology or, you know, sociology, right. You know, understanding where people get their, their meaning from, right. What is the, the symbolism and the mesh of meaning that they create and live in. And, you know, then you mentioned things like, oh, you know, it's too bad that Shakespeare and Beethoven are things for the, you know, just to enjoy on the weekends. But it seems like if you're trying to understand the typical customer of a car or an app or whatever, you know, Shakespeare and Beethoven aren't going to be what you ought to be studying, right? Shouldn't you be studying Justin Bieber and Fifty Shades of Grey, right? I mean, shouldn't you be studying that stuff? I mean, isn't that where, you know, the typical, isn't that the habitus of the typical customer, right? I mean, what's the relevance of of Shakespeare for understanding, you know, somebody who's playing Angry Birds or, or you know, buying a, a Lincoln Continental. Right. And nothing wrong with Angry Birds or the Continental. But I, I think what I'm saying is there's a skill set that comes out of studying the 1880s and what happened with industrialization at that point, or studying what it was like to live in 17th century Germany, let's say, or South Korea, there's a skill set of putting together data sets that you sort of find from scraps in a way. You find it from what did they say? What did they listen to? What did they read? What was an everyday experience like from then? So, you know, an example would be living during 1917 in England, you know, what was it like to be an 18 year old, you know, being drafted at that point? Th that skill set is the skill set of a historian, right? Or an art historian would be able to study the Bauhaus and what happened at that time. And they can put together, well, sets of data, let's call it that for now, sets of information and piece together what something might be like or what it might be like to be, you know, a person at that point or a group of people at that point. That skill set is trained in class and in, you know, during university and can, and the same skill set can be applied when you try to figure out what it's like to be a, an 18 year old that is trying to figure out how to find love after being locked up for two years. That the same analytical attitude and the same sort of ability to piece things together that is nonlinear in a way. The data is not the same. You can't add it up in a spreadsheet or in a sort of a computer model. 
you have to analyze it, put it together, analyze it sort of in a hermeneutic way. So it's true that Beethoven doesn't have any, maybe not any direct relationship to, you know, to kids and toys today, but the technique you learn from studying it, if you study music history, for me is so practical and so natural. I just have to convince the world that's the case and sometimes it, ha it works. But I've found people trained in those topics to be, once they see the application of it, the ability to analyze what's going on now, it turns out to be really helpful. That's sort of the idea. The second thing is, you said it come from this, comes from the social sciences and some of it does. I, I sort of ended backwards into the techniques of ethnography because it wasn't something I studied in school very much. It was, you know, people, some people have said that Red is a group of philosophers using, doing anthropology. And I'm not snobbish with, let's say, academic silos. I think we can all use those techniques. And I think the, the particular perspective, philosophical perspective on what humans are and human societies are that come out of a group of humanities and social science backgrounds, you know, yeah, backgrounds that are all helpful. And I don't really care which one, frankly. I've seen people that studied art history being incredibly skilled at understanding what it's like to be others, even though if you look at it from the outside, what on earth does, you know, impressionism have to do with what's going on now? Well, it turns out the technique of studying it is of help. So I think within each of these disciplines, there may be some people that are learning this practical skill of perspective taking, doing deep dives into the web of meaning, and there are others that aren't. Do you see the way in which we kind of teach humanities and social sciences now to be uh, well-designed for the development of that skill? Or are, are we, you know, have we moved far away from, from that intent, if that ever was the intent of, you know, how we would train people in these skills? And, and I guess the secondary question is, you know, in the graduate programs, we, we tend to train people for academics and, and nothing else. And so the majority of folks who get PhDs don't wind up in academia, but the way in which they've learned their discipline is not easy to redeploy into the non-academic environment. So do we need to rethink how we're teaching the humanities in particular, and perhaps the social sciences, both at the undergrad and, and the grad level, so that people can, on the one hand, be better at this skill of interpretation of meaning and perspective taking, and then also, you know, to be perhaps more capable of applying these skills in environments outside of getting those ac academic publications that have those 0 0.8 readers. Right. Well, I, I think there's a snobbishness, an unnecessary snobbishness in many of these departments that we're talking about. And it's a very defensive. It's sort of painting itself into a corner in terms of engaging in the world. And not all of it. I mean, there's so much good stuff happening. But in general, I think it would be good if humanities and social science departments were a little more, a little less. And I have to say, I've moved around in the academic world, you know, lecturing and teaching for a long time. And it seems to be getting worse. The tribalism seems to be getting worse. It's interesting that 
anthropologists just hate sociologists and sociologists just can't stand historians. And they speak in their own language to themselves at their same conferences. And if you are not pure, let's say, in you know, that particular tradition or that particular sub-tradition where five people tend to talk to each other about you know, something, it's, it's looked down upon. And, and I think we often take very smart, creative students and we educate them out of the possibility of using what they learn and they end up not using what they learn. Do you think it's snobbishness or do you think it's kind of insecurity, right? Like, uh, in other words, you know, they're not sure about how valuable what it is that they're doing is. And so they have to kind of fall back on these internally referential, you know, criteria for success. Yeah. It's certainly insecurity and it's also being, f feeling left out, I think. But it comes out as that as many other things, but often as sort of a sense of fury and rage over the state of affairs. That's not always fun to, you know, to engage with. So let's say a PhD student have been ed educated in that for 10 years and they come out and they are, they want to be in the public sector and engage with, you know, healthcare matters or education or something like that. And their fundamental attitude is one of aggression and, and sort of being a downer. That's not great. And I think it's not, you know, the, the, the misery is palpable, I think, in, in, in those departments. And that's too bad because it's not fun. It's not helpful. And, you know, everybody's angry. Nobody's happy. And it's, you know, that's, that's generalizing unreasonably, but I just think we should be part of it rather than outside of it. Well, you know, in business schools, I, I always think of business schools as kind of the, the clearinghouse for all sorts of disciplines that might be useful in pragmatic affairs, right? So, you know, the achievement of practical wisdom, right? You need all these different insights, but business schools are dominated by economists and to a lesser extent, psychologists. And, you know, there's a couple anthropologists. I have a colleague who's an anthropologist and, you know, sociologist, right? Teaching, but generally it's economists and to a lesser extent psychologists, and then you throw in a couple engineers right into the mix, maybe some operations research people. And so in a way, business school is not really doing the job of kind of teaching people the complete tool set that they need for, you know, phrenesis in the, in the modern world. But there have been a couple attempts and you talk about design thinking, right? So design thinking is, I think in many ways, a pushback. You know, I remember I, I was teaching something called human factors in engineering school, which kind of made its way into design thinking. And I'm here at Berkeley. I have a colleague who's an engineer who's teaching the design thinking class while I, an historian, was teaching the, the statistics class. And we used to joke about it all the time. But, you know, design thinking is very has makes reference all the time to, to anthropology. And a lot of times they claim to be anthropologists. And when they're doing, you know, customer journey mapping and observation, the IDO folks sit around and watch the kids brush their teeth and figure out like, you know, what they're doing, both in terms of how they use their hands, but also presumably, you know, what they're thinking. And you've been critical of this movement, but, but isn't, isn't your criticism sort of an affectionate criticism in the way that, you know, you have greater aspirations for what they're trying to do and you think that you only wish they could do it a little bit better? A absolutely. Absolutely. I'm criticizing the actual practice happening that I've seen for 20 years. And I think you're right. The source of it was Stanford, 
university and human factors, engineering people, more so than in the sense of aesthetic and design vision and so on. It, that was added. And I think it is called ethnographic, but when you see it, actually see it in a company that makes medical technical equipment somewhere, it's not impressive. It's very fast. It's sort of interviewing people for an hour and looking at them brushing teeth and then calling it a day. And I think that's not enough. And in a way, it has blocked, I think, maybe a more sophisticated analysis because you just get a little bit of design thinking often done. So it's, so it's, see, so it's seen as kind of an add on or a little, you know, cherry on the cake. It's not seen as being an, you know, an integral part of business, right? It's in fact, I mean, we had it as sort of a one credit add on to our core curriculum and, and it's kind of faded a little bit, but I think you're arguing that the, the insight needs to be integrated much more deeply into kind yeah. of every aspect of what we do in business schools. Yeah, I definitely, I, I think, I mean, first of all, we need people that understand that are financially literate and that can be organized in terms of how you invest, how capital markets work, you know, and so on. So business schools, necessary, helpful. And I, I know that not every business school are as proud of themselves as they were maybe in the nineties, but still without MBAs, I don't know how on earth we're going to run anything. So that is sort of the beginning of it, but I think design thinking sort of covered up the necessity of understanding human worlds. And it, sometimes it, it's sort of a superficial choice. Sometimes it's kind of deep, actually. There's some companies where I've seen it integrated in everything, being integrated in everything, but it ends up being just a workshop that's fun and colorful for a while and more like an HR exercise of people, you know, getting people together than significant sort of analysis of what's going on. So that's too bad. I have to say, and people laugh at me when I say this, I also miss aesthetic vision. S sometimes the places where design thinking is most prevalent, and that includes consulting or advisory firms, everything ends up looking the same. It's sort of nice and cute and have rounded corners, you know, and have no risk involved. So some of these, some of this design thinking kind of practices have ended up where medical devices look like phones, look like TV sets and look like, you know, the interior of cars uh, without sort of thinking maybe people are different and maybe these human settings call for a different sort of aesthetic vision and that, and it design thinking sort of killed that. That's too bad because we need that too. And I think you mentioned that oftentimes they start from a certain set of assumptions about people, like that they all want, you know, less frictions in their world. And that, you know, the whole purpose of design thinking is to kind of remove the, the frictions from the, the customer journey, which exactly. may not be true, right? About people. Huh, it, yeah. I mean, I think there was a, from the eighties and, and onwards, there was a focus on convenience. And I think it's gotten a little worse, actually, the last five years, particularly because technology companies have been attacked so much that they're careful of making, taking any risks. So now it's just not just convenient, it's cute. And sort of the designs that are being made are all sort of nice and 
almost childish. And I don't think everything should be childish. I don't think everything should look that way or have the fundamental assumption that everything needs to be easy, frictionless, and cute. That's not, at least my experience, looking at people, that's not what I've seen being necessary and needed. Now, when you describe kind of acquiring this tool set of empathic capacity or anthropological capacity, you mentioned different frameworks, right? I mean, you mentioned Soar, right? Not an anthropologist, right? But you mentioned Irving Goffman, also not an anthropologist. You mentioned Marshall Salins. You know, you mentioned these different uh, frameworks. And I enjoyed that a lot because this is how I see economics done well, right? You have a bunch of frameworks. And I think it was Keynes said that economics is the science of model design and the art of model selection, right? So there's an element of kind of metacognition. So you go out and you acquire these different frameworks, you acquire these different uh, perspectives and on how to approach this anthropological endeavor. But then you need some kind of integrative function, right? You need to know kind of when do you apply which framework and which context. And, and I think that's something that probably needs to be acquired through experience, right? And it's something that's kind of difficult to do in, in a kind of theoretical setting. Is that right? I mean, how does this art of framework selection kind of play out in a practitioner? Right. I think that's a core, and maybe that's because I am interested in phenomenology. There, there is a, there's a core analytical root let's say a root to, or the trunk of the tree is the analysis of human worlds. So how the world of theater or the world of hospitals or the world of being a cancer patient, those are all human worlds that have a structure to them. And that structure involves the manipulation of equipment. It has moods that you can analyze. It has a series of seemingly disparate kind of objects and equipment involved that are that hang together in a particular way. So let's take the world of theater. It's got actors, plays, tickets, chairs, stages. It's got Broadway. It has different categories to it. Some are very music-centric, some are not. But they all have a, are part of a human world that has a particular structure. And I think that's where it starts for me every time, describing the human world and how that coordinates activity and is the root of meaning in that particular world. So any world I've ever seen is like that. And sometimes those worlds are emerging. So one of the things I've had the privilege of studying for 15 years is the changes in the mobile phone from when it was a flip phone without a camera to a flip phone with a camera to a breakthrough into smartphones and so on. The world of smartphones then changed over time and added new pieces of equipment and new pieces of sort of new parts of that world. So worlds can change over time as technology gets accepted and so on, but they are, they're all worlds. So that's where it starts. And then once you have that, when you try to understand a world, you can then almost unreasonably sort of throw theory at it and see how can we make a big amount of observation. And it has to be large because if it's based on an hour with 10 people, then it's difficult. But if it's large enough, then when does it snap into place? And for me, I 
and it's kind of people have called it like almost like dirty way of trying to analyze, throw things at it so that you can see how can we get this to become a meaningful whole that we can test. And that's the abductive process, right? That's the process of trying to find a framework that you can then test. You can use statistics and computer science and, you know, all kinds of testing mechanisms. But the early stages of trying to make sense of a world has a world structure, has equipment, meaning, people in it, has a particular language, specialized language. It's got moods, so particular mood around it. And when that snaps into place, you can sort of see it clearly and you can then come up with ideas from it. You can test it. You can do lots of things with it. So that's sort of the approach I've had, which some people find not siloed enough. Let's say, you know, because well, it's also hard. It's hard to, you know, teach, right? So abduction is, it's easy to teach deduction. It's easy to teach induction. How do you teach abduction, right? I'm always puzzled by this. And I guess, you know, the case method is one way, right? And I think experiencing different texts and, and different worlds, right, is, is, is a way. But, you know, this moment of grace or clicking as you describe it, right, you know, it's hard to engineer that. You talk about George Soros, right? And I, I love talking about him. He came to Wharton right after he crushed the Bank of England and described what he did. And I remember he came to University of Virginia and, and talked about, you know, his work with Popper and so forth. And I remember him saying, and you repeat the story in the book, he said, well, you know, sometimes I know when to exit a position because my back hurts. Okay, well... All right. How are we going to, you know, even if it turns out to have, you know, credible predictive value, right? How do we teach someone to train their back so that, you know, their back will hurt when it's time to exit a position, right? It doesn't seem scalable. It doesn't seem like something that we can bake into the educational process, this process of achieving grace or, or intuition. And, you know, I think also you use other examples in the book. One example you use is like a firefighter and how a firefighter kind of knows when to leave a building. And I've, I've heard stories of this sort of thing. That doesn't seem rooted in the humanities at all, right? No amount of Beethoven is going to help you figure <laughs> out when it's time to leave a flaming building, right? It is sort of a, an intuition, but it's an intuition based on your understanding of the physical world and not the kind of human world. But I think, you know, you're arguing that the human world is kind of more suited to abduction as a method of knowledge and understanding than, than the physical world. Sure, you know, there's going to be the Einstein has this pop of, of genius, but, you know, it's really the human world that is much more difficult to systematically and, you know, rigorously model. And therefore, yeah. it opens up more of an opportunity for this kind of insight. Yeah, I, I mean, you make me think that the example about firefighters is a bad one. And I, I think you're right, because it's so physical in a way. But it's based on seeing signs, right? It's a based on mm -hmm. observation. And the next book I'm writing is called How to Pay Attention. And but you can't, well, you can't read a textbook and learn how to no. do what that firefighter does, right? I mean, exactly. that's, I think that's the point. Right? It is. You kind of have to be fighting fires for a while before this happens. Right, exactly. The way I've done it, the way I've taught it for a long time is through having students, groups of students. I think doing it alone is very difficult. Some people can, but in general, it's hard. And have them pick a phenomenon. Have them pick something that they are, a theme, let's say, that they're interested in. So an example could be finding love through dating sites, dating apps. 
do you, do you tell your students to go find love? <laughs> is this an assignment? You got to find a lot, you know, by the end of the semester, no, you got to no, no, find no. love on a dating app. Well, some of them actually do, <laughs> which is fantastic. But uh, no, figuring out people that use them and get an understanding of their world and how this piece of equipment is used in this world. And you know, I mean, several of my classes, there have been groups that studied that. And one of the things they found was how mechanistic it is for people. So how people that are heavy users of this technology finds a way of understanding the algorithm and the inner logic of the algorithm in order to find what they want. And, you know, find what they want can be different things. It can be volume, which was the case for some. It can be precision, let's say, finding someone that you connect with longer than, you know, 24 hours. So you see and interact by observing it without having a hypothesis, without concluding before you start. You just look and listen for a change and you follow people over time. And you find only after you've observed for a while, you can see that there are patterns in the behavior. Some of it, which are maybe unwanted for a lot of people and some of it, which is freeing and delightful for others. And I think that the, so what I teach you, I call it human observation. And it's simply suspending judgment and looking, collecting information, you could say, collecting data by looking long enough and sort of not empathizing because that sounds so soft. It's much more cynical than that. Extracting information from people using whatever, in this case, dating apps to understand how it is part of their world and what role it plays. So you can do that at scale, right? You can teach observation and the interesting thing is when I then talk to some of the, I mean, I talked to um, a very famous economist that won the Nobel Prize, you know, writing about the market for lemons. And he said, you know, of course the models are advanced and the mathematical brilliance of it is of course there, but at the heart of it is just observation of humans that you then hypothesize from and then build models from and then solidify models from. But at the core is this ability to look and suspend judgment, which is key and, you know, a big problem for big parts of the social sciences that have already concluded before they start looking. But that's the key. And it's so hard for them. It's so hard to, for the, for at least for my students to not judge, stay long enough with the phenomenon, not be too involved in the person. I'm not so interested in about in individuals. I'm interested in groups of people and how they engage with a particular, it can be a technology or it can be some sort of phenomenon. And then at a certain point, it snaps into place. And in order to do that, you need theory, right? You need theory to engage what you see, but at the heart of it, and I think at the heart of any good scientific effort, including the natural sciences, is this observation ability and paying attention to sort of everything and, and nothing at the same time. It's sort of a panoptic blaze of attention towards a phenomenon. And that can be done at scale, I, I think. And I think it can be taught. So, so I think Jillian Tett in her new book about anthropology argued that, you know, an anthropological perspective helps you to understand others, but at the end of the day, it also helps you to understand yourself and, and the world that you live in. So there's a point you made in the book, which I wanted to 
jump in, wanted to kind of engage you on, which is that this idea that, you know, you need to study the animals on the savannah and, and not in, in the zoo, right? And that, you know, when you're doing model building, you tend to focus on, you create a zoo, you put the creatures in the zoo, and then you study them in the zoo. But just as with the natural world, you know, there are no animals left on the savannah. <laughs> you know, the only way that we're going to learn about elephants in the future is going to be by going down to the zoo and studying them. <laughs> and it seems like that's it's kind of true with people in a way, because these models have a tendency to not only uh, interpret, but also to shape people, right? So there's this, this feedback loop, you know, perfect example of this is, you know, Black Shoals, right? So, you know, Black Shoals was meant to kind of describe how options are priced, but of course it didn't really describe how they were really priced until the model was published. And then once the model was published, then of course it actually became pretty good at predicting, you know, prices. And so aren't we all kind of being shaped by the theories that are being developed? I mean, you know, you say Silicon Valley doesn't a very, do a very good job of understanding people, but it's kind of turning people into the kind of people that they thought we were. Isn't there this kind of feedback loop happening? Absolutely. And that can be studied too, I think, in a meaningful way. Maybe I should give an example. The American pickup truck is a phenomenon. If you're from Denmark, you've never seen it. Not really, <laughs> at least. <laughs> It, but, That's a market but, that Ford could conquer. We, you know, Ford needs to, you know, know. educate the, the Danish on the beauty and benefits of a large pickup truck. Yeah. The, the, the roads and the parking lots are not big enough, but you're right. You need to restructure the entire infrastructure. But what, when you study the American pickup truck, I've seen sort of people from coastal American environments going to central part of America with a lot of assumptions and a lot of preconceived notions about the people living there and the people using the trucks. And one of the assumptions is they will never buy an electric version of it because the burning of stuff is involved, you know, is almost like a political agenda, which turns out to be not true at all. It's also that the truck is about a, a kind of powerful a, you know, engagement with the world, which is true. But when you then, you know, I, I saw this group of researchers looking at the American truck and they found that the pickup truck is very connected to community. It's a symbol of being helpful in the community in many places that, you know, we looked at in America in particular, but also in Brazil and other places. It is connected to being a good person because you can help people move around, you know, move around things. And it's quite often connected to the church, which is interesting as well. So the world of the pickup truck is not one necessarily of just about hunting and construction and, you know, some sort of like a picture of masculinity that the researchers might have assumed, but is a very gentle one. And it turns out that helpfulness around a truck is also charging stuff. And has nothing to do with the liquid you burn, but has everything to do with the, how it sits in the human world, in the communities that they live in. And that electrification of these trucks is not just possible, but very attractive for the people using it. So that is picture, putting together the human world around the phenomenon of the American pickup truck and seeing that the assumptions we made and what many people that have 
that are maybe in the anthropology or, you know, history departments of North America might not have seen had they not gone there, suspended judgment, looked at it and found the possibilities for innovation and for change in the area. So, so that's what I mean by suspending judgment, that this tool of suspending judgment and just looking makes it not just more precise, more a better description and maybe more surprising description of what's going on with the people you want to serve, but also, but also a potential for, you know, ideas and innovation and change. So that's what I mean by human observation that, you know, just shut up, you know, and, and try to leave your political opinions, your preconceived notions behind for a little while and see what's going on, you know, and that is, for me, phenomenology when it's practical and applicable. And I, I think also things you can change, major things in the world, if you do it well and in an organized manner. So I think you make the claim that cultural inquiry is, is not a luxury. I mean, it's a necessity. Is philosophy a luxury? I mean, you talk about philosophy quite a bit. You know, you're rooted in phenomenology. You talk about Husserl, talk about Heidegger, you talk about my old colleague, Hubert Dreyfus. Can we expect most people to engage with philosophy? And if so, kind of at what level? I mean, I don't expect most people are going to kind of bring Heidegger to the beach and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> read it with their pina coladas and so forth. But, you know, th there is philosophy as a broader kind of approach to, to thinking. How can we kind of make philosophy less of a, a luxury and, and more of a, a necessity in, in life? Does it have to be in, in the educational system or, you know, can we incorporate it into how we do our HR, <laughs> you know, your favorite, one of your favorite topics? <laughs> how do we make people more kind of, kind of philosophical? I mean, if philosophical means being wonky about it, if it means professional philosophy, not the way Hubert Dreyfus did it, because he's a big deal for me, but the way it's carried out in most philosophy departments, it's so boring. And I, I don't think you can convince many people other than sort of hand-waving that's helpful. So there is a way of engaging with philosophy that's perfectly possible to explain to others, see how you use it in a, in a, in a practical way, but it's not the wonky version. And I, I get that we need that. We need people that are comparing Thomas Aquinas to other contemporaries. But if you go into a boardroom in a pharmaceutical company and, and, and try to start doing that, then their eyes glaze over and you're not invited back. But if, you know, let's take a pharmaceutical firm. If you want to understand how immunotherapy has changed how we look at cancer, let's say, and, and being told you have cancer, you can study it as a phenomenon and you can study it as how a disease and a, and a new technology changes human worlds, changes the relationship between th the people that are told that they have it, the people that know people that have told that they have it. That can be studied in a sort of by human observation. But if you come and, you know, try to be snobbish about it, then you lose people and that's unhelpful for everybody. So if philosophy is professional philosophy, I, I don't think it'll work. Should we teach it? Absolutely. Right. Because the way to explain philosophy is to understand the tradition and have some and have depth to it. But you also just need to explain that other people doesn't have enough 
you know, maybe enough time for it. Uh, so I think it should mm -hmm. be integrated everywhere, but not in that way, you know. Right. Well, when we have philosophers teaching at the business schools, then we'll know that, you know, we've maybe figured it out a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but until then, Christian, thank you so much for, for joining me. I really appreciate the conversation. Most recent book called Sense Making, Power of Humanities in the Age of Algorithm. And you mentioned that you have another book that might be coming out. Could you tell us just briefly about that? Yes. So the next book is going to be called How to Pay Attention, which is kind of cheeky, but it's about observation. And it's a mix of, it's again, sort of a reaction to what's going on with technology. So, of course, we are filling the world with cameras and sensors right now. And we are doing unassisted learning systems, incredibly, tech, you know, technologically sophisticated. But they're human questions, right? The question of seeing and listening is help is relevant to the question of does a car see, you know, and human worlds is exactly what you could say deep learning is after trying to understand how human worlds come together and make sense to people. If they want to get even to sort of cat level, you know, in, in intelligence. So and I, the best ones will say that. So it's about seeing, and then it's a collection of the best observers that I've seen in, you know, as long as I've lived, it's a collection of people that write about nature. My favorite book in the world, which is called The Peregrine by Jay Baker. It is, there are things about the artists that, visual artists that are helping us understand what seeing is and how we see. So that's artists like Donald Judd and, you know, James Turrell and others. And, and Hubert Dreyfus' favorite you know, Cezanne, which is the one that gets the closest to painting how humans see and, and basically trying to describe through these examples, how on earth we, you know, when we go down the street, what's that like, you know, and how is that different from, let's say a sensor or a camera in a phone. Uh, and it turns out it's very different. And so it's this mix of sort of trying to introduce what I find poetic and very skillful observation and trying to show that this is a reasonable thing to be engaged with if you're interested in technology. So, so that's the next book. And it's something I've been working on for 20 years and I can't wait to see what happens. So uh, I'm wondering, where do you think you learn more about how to see from looking at paintings or from painting itself? You know, I took a painting class and, you know, was never any good at painting, but it completely forever altered how I would see the world. Now, I, I would probably argue that while I was taking that painting class, I was also taking art history classes. And so there was a, kind of a, a feedback loop there. But, you know, without actually engaging in, in the practice, can, you know, get better at it? Or do you have to kind of practice it while you're learning from others and their practice? I suppose you can. For me, it's not been that. For me, it's, for me, it's just looking at the world in very simple ways. So that could be, how do we relate to animals? How do we see how humans see animals? And it turns out, you know, if you think about it, if you look at groups of animals, you're not counting them. You're not, you know, a flock of lions. You're just seeing a flock of lions. You're not seeing 14 of them or eight of them. When you see, when you see um, pigeons, you see a reasonable amount of them. You're not counting them. Or 
when you see dumplings on a plate, you don't see six or seven of them. You see enough or too many. So we have these human categories that we use to experience the world. And that's very different from a camera where you are a machine that would count it. When you see a train coming towards you, you don't see a point that get bigger and bigger. You see a small point and suddenly it snaps into a big, you know. So we see these holes or these sort of, you know, in Germany, you call it gestalts. And that's how we experience the world rather than through seeing the same point of getting bigger in equal increments or the amount of dumplings as one, two, three, four, five, six, we just see that's too many for me. And that's very different from, you would say, a natural science approach. It would be an experiential one. And so, so it's very much about seeing how that works. Even in the most banal kind of walking down the street, flying with an airplane, taking off with an airplane, looking at animals. And I think that's deeply relevant. And I think many technology people are, are running into this problem and are excited about it because it, it shows how we see the world, even though that might not be the best way if you were sort of theoretical and analytical about it, but it's the way that we see it. So, well, full stop, right? Well, well, in addition to learning how to, in addition to learning how to see the world more like a human, presumably you also wanted to learn how to see the world like different kind of types of humans, right? So, exactly. you know, we all have these different kind of interpretive schema, depending on, you know, where we're coming from. And, you know, it'd be cool, presumably in autonomous driving, if you could say, okay, you know, we're surrounded by a sea of German drivers, we're surrounded by a sea of American drivers. You know, how do you flip that switch and, and make sure that the vehicle is driving like a German driver and seeing the world like a German driver and not just the universal human driver? Yeah. And then that's very advanced for driverless vehicle discussion right now. Right now, they just want us, want the car not to run into a ditch. And, and this is something we know, but that the engineers would have to trial and error for thousands, you know, millions of hours. And it still doesn't work. Why? Well, because we know things that are common sense to us and that's different. So that's what's exciting about it, I think. And you're right about German and, and let's say LA style driving is deeply different and has a different mood and different, not different rules, but different styles, you could say. Well, I look forward to the book, Christian. Check it out. Thanks so much. We'll talk again soon. Thank Maybe you next so time much. you're in the Bay Area. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Unsiloed.